And that was awesome. How you guys doing this morning? Yeah? Anybody go to the beach this weekend? Who went to the beach? Let me see hands. That's a pretty good turnout. Next time I speak, I want to see more hands. You're in California, you got to go. Well, hey, my name is Austin Helm. I'm one of the pastors on staff here at EV Free. I'm so excited to be here with you. Um, we're kind of walking into a, a, a speaker series right now. Uh, Mike is out studying and getting ready for the fall, and so the next couple of weeks we're going to have some guest speakers, uh, among whom is Tim Yulhoff. Um, he's going to be here next Sunday, and he is a phenomenal communicator, uh, especially when it comes to having difficult conversations about faith. So he's going to speak on Sunday morning. He's got a terrific book. More than that, on Monday evening in the chapel, he's going to kind of do a panel, a Q&A. So if you hear some things on Sunday morning that you have more questions about or things maybe he didn't address, you'll get to go to that in the chapel and kind of have a smaller setting uh, to interact with him in. Again, my name is Austin. I spoke here in June, and after I was done, I had some people coming up to me and talking with me, and one lady said, hey, it was, it was good, but this is your first time speaking, and we want to see your family. We want to meet your family. I was like, oh, my gosh. Aaron Kerr did such a good job of that, so I thought I would spend just one minute with you guys introducing my family. Is that all right? Come on. Who wants to see the family? Yeah. That's what I'm talking about. We got slide number one. It's my mom and my dad, two of the hardest working people that I know. I love them. So thankful for them for some of the formation they've put in me. Uh, They're also probably going to watch this later, and I didn't tell them I was going to show pictures of them. So mom and dad, sorry about that. Second slide is my brother, his fiance, and my nephew. Um, If you weren't here in June, I'm from the great state of Oklahoma. Okay, state right there, Pokes. Love it. I mean, I don't love it, but, you know, I do love Oklahoma, so I'll stand with you to a certain extent. But my parents raised me to be crimson and cream in the cradle. They had me saying, sooner born, sooner bred. When I die, I'll be sooner dead. So that's what I was raised on, so I still carry that mantra in my own soul. So we go to games when we can. The next slide is my sister and her husband, they just got married a couple years ago. She's just a sweetheart. She's super fun. The only problem my sister really has right now is that I still see her as like my 16-year-old younger sister. I'm like, wait a second, you're not 16 anymore. You're, well, you can ask her how old she is when you meet her. I know I'm not supposed to do that, but they got married a couple years ago, had the chance to officiate their wedding, and her husband is just an awesome guy, got the chance to play baseball. Baseball was one of our our common loves. I grew up playing baseball. Anybody in here play baseball growing up? Yeah, I got a couple people. I bet you more people played football. Where are the football people at? Okay, baseball it is. Baseball <laughs> it is. I'm in the wrong room. Um, anyway, we want to hop into the text again. Uh, with the speaker series coming up, they're going to be really dynamic sermons, uh, but we're going to be out of Luke for a while. So before we jump into four weeks, Without Luke, and I know all of you, your hearts are breaking to not be in Luke. Um, we're going to do one more in Luke, uh, and it's Luke chapter 6. We're actually going to dive in to the same text that Mike preached out of last week. And his sermon was awesome, how to navigate enemies, um, how to engage with enemies. And there's three concrete examples 
that Jesus gives when he's speaking to the crowd. And we kind of brushed over those because they are so loaded with cultural and historical context that we thought we'd save it for one more week and just spend a week kind of getting into that. So we're going to read from Luke chapter 6, verse 27. I'm going to turn with you there. It's Jesus speaking to a crowd of disciples and followers. And he says this, But to you who are listening, I say, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If anyone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. So, here we have Jesus talking to a crowd. And as I'm reading through this, the first word that jumps out of the page at me is the word listen. When Jesus is speaking, but to you who are listening. When this word listen is used in the Bible, it always refers to the act of listening to the word of God. It's not used to refer of listening to a neighbor or the family or a coworker, but it's exclusively the act of listening to the word of God. And it's more than just listening. It carries the idea that when somebody would listen, they would actually see a picture. They would see a vision of what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes and invades planet Earth. And always this picture was not common It was not ordinary. It was never what the listener, seer expected. It was always a dangerous vision. It was always something counter-cultural. It was something they would not expect in a million years. And when they would see this from the Lord, when they would hear this, it demanded action of them. They couldn't listen to God's word and just put it in their mental faculty of knowledge and philosophical understanding, but they were forced and compelled to follow what they heard. It's like a story with my grandma. Love my grandma. Any grandmas in the house? Come on. Love you grandmas. The work you do is awesome. So I was a good junior high student. I'd go to school all day. I'd come home, and like every good junior high student, I would sit on the couch, get out the remote control, and I would start flipping channels, baby. I love that TV. And sometimes my grandma would watch us after school. Uh, So she'd come in and I'd be on the couch watching, you know, any number of channels. We didn't really have a preview channel then, so you kind of had to flip until you found what you wanted, right? Anybody remember that? No DVR, no preview channel. You just keep flipping until you find what you want. Come on, that's right. The, The dial, the dial. Gosh, I love that dial. I remember that watching Sonic the Hedgehog on Saturday mornings, just trying to turn that dial um, so I'm sitting there, I'm flipping through the channels, and I'm focused, I'm tuned in. I want to stop on the right channel. And then I hear this kind of muffled, audible voice coming from my grandma. Now, it wasn't muffled because she wasn't articulate. She was a very sharp, very sweet, uh, very good communicator. But it was muffled because my attention was not on my grandma. It was on the TV. So this muffled voice would come at me. I didn't really hear what it was saying. But I trained myself that when I heard the muffling stop, when I heard it cease, I would say the words, okay, grandma. Those those are the wrong words. So that happened for a little while. And then my grandma would say, I would would say, okay, grandma. And then she would kind of stop in that sweet, grandma, motherly, stern voice. Say, Austin, are you listening to me? 
Yes, Grandma, I heard you. Oh, man. At that point, I was busted. Because she'd say, I know that you heard me, but were you listening to me? Oh, gosh. I knew that she knew I hadn't listened to her. Because if I had been listening to her, I would have got my butt up off the couch, and I would have gone and done something, because my grandma was probably asking me to do something. So grandmas know, when they say something to their grandkids, grandkids, we love you, but you got to get up and you got to do it. So I knew that when my grandma spoke, it demanded a certain action of me. And if I didn't, if I didn't fulfill that action, my grandma knew that I wasn't listening. Israel was the exact same way. When God would speak to them, it, it demanded a certain action of them. And when they, when they didn't fulfill those actions, they were accused of not listening well. And so Israel developed this mantra. It was, it was the idea that Israel needed to listen. The text would say, listen, Israel. The Lord your God is one. And this listening, it wasn't a philosophical understanding of who God was or how God existed, but this idea of God being one demanded a certain action of them. Knowing that God was one demanded that they denounce idols. Knowing that God was one demanded of them that they give generously. And knowing that God was one demanded of them that they worship fully. And so Israel would continually say this and remind themselves to listen well. Rabbis would often say, the kind of student that listens to the text and also does the text He's the kind of student that stares the Shekinah in the face. And the Shekinah is just another word for God's presence. It's this idea that hearing, listening, the philosophical, intellectual facility isn't enough. But when you listen and you do, that is when you really encounter the presence of God. And so for a student of Torah, they wouldn't just listen, but they would apply what the text told them to do in the real world. And when they would do it in the real world, they would see how the kingdom of God played out in their everyday life. And so as they're going to work and going to school and interacting with their family and applying God's word, they're constantly bumping up against the presence of God. So in this text, we find Jesus using this word. He's asking us to listen to his words because his words reflect God's words. And not only that, his words are going to carry that same demand and call to action. But these words aren't going to be comfortable. They're not going to be familiar. They're not going to be what we expect. But they're going to be wildly dangerous, wildly countercultural. But if we'll be faithful to do them, we're going to start bumping up into God's presence everywhere we go. Are you guys with me? Awesome. So this call stands to us this morning. So Jesus is speaking. He says, but to you who are listening, I say to you, love your neighbor. Love your friends. Love those who do good to you. That's what the listeners would have expected to have heard. But instead they hear something dangerous and countercultural. Jesus says, love your enemies. And so for Jesus, we find him standing in alignment with the written Torah. The written Torah was very explicit and clear 
that the people of Israel were to love their neighbors, but there weren't a lot of words written about their enemies. And so the oral tradition takes over, and the oral tradition adds that you should love your neighbor, but it's perfectly acceptable to, to hate your enemies. And this enemies word here, it's not a word for the person in the workforce that you can't get along with, or that person in your family that you can't communicate with, or your fellow student that you just butt heads with. It's not that kind of an enemy. This kind of an enemy exclusively kind of refers to the idea of political enemies, national enemies. It, it's it's the, the idea of two states being at war against each other, two governments being at war against each other. And for Israel, this enemy was clear. It was the Romans. The Romans had an agenda in Israel, and this agenda was in direct conflict to the agenda of Israel. Israel, their story tells them that they had been given land by God. They referred to this as the promised land. And this land had been handed to them and passed down by their family, and they were going to pass it on to their family. And they wanted to be in their land alone, and they wanted to rule themselves. They wanted their own government, their own king, and they wanted to be completely autonomous from the other nations, completely separate. Rome, on the other hand, these two agendas, they wouldn't work together because Rome had come in and occupied their land and made it very clear that they weren't going to leave. Not only that, they made it clear that Caesar was their king, the Roman government was their government, and they had no chance of being autonomous. And so the state of Israel and the state of Rome are in direct conflict with one another. And so when Jesus says, love your enemies, he's most nearly telling them to love the Romans. And this just would have flown in the face of everything they thought and believed. Rabbis would teach their students and say, the the student who learns Torah, the student who studies Torah and does not hate properly is no student of Torah at all. And so to love your neighbor and to hate the Romans that were in the land was completely acceptable until Jesus comes on the scene. And Jesus tells them to love their enemies. He tells them to love the Romans. And then he goes on to give them three concrete examples of what situations may look like if indeed they interact with the Roman and there's a a disagreeable situation. So we're going to read both of those. One of those is in Luke chapter 6. The other is in Matthew chapter 5. So if you want to kind of Hold both places. We're going to go back and forth between the two. Luke chapter 6 and Matthew chapter 5. We'll reread some select verses out of Luke. Beginning in verse 29. This is the examples of the concrete imagery that it gives us. It's Luke 6.29. If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also. If someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. So flip over, Matthew chapter 5. Jesus again is speaking to his followers and his disciples. And he says this, the examples are similar. 
There's one that he adds in some extra details that he gives that Luke doesn't. It's chapter 5, verse 39. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. These are the three concrete examples that Jesus gives us of how Jewish civilians should interact with Romans. Are you guys with me? Yes, that's right. This girl, yes. We are on the same page. Everybody else? Come on. All right. We're going to hop into these. Now, we're going to unpack each example slowly and really dive into some of the historical and contextual context. So we're going we're to kind of spend our time going slowly for the next 10 minutes. I want you guys to journey with me. We're going to start with the idea of turning the other cheek. So when Jesus asked his listeners to turn the other cheek, in Luke, he writes, yeah, if someone strikes you on the cheek, turn the other cheek as well. Matthew is far more specific, though. When Matthew writes, he says, if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. This is the kind of detail that we can clickly glide over. But we have to think to ourselves, if Jesus is talking about enemies, and he's talking about the Romans specifically, what kind of Romans would have been in the land of Israel at the time? The two kinds of Romans are, one, Roman soldiers, and two, Roman government officials. Now, in order to be in the Roman army, it was extremely difficult to be somebody who was left-handed. The culture was predominantly a right-handed culture. Can everybody in the room who's right-handed raise your hand? So you can even look around. Even today, the right-handed culture is predominant. So in order to serve in the Roman army, you needed to be right-handed, and that's because The Roman army prided itself on moving as one, defending as one, attacking as one. And so all shields and all weapons were made for right-handed people. So not only was the left hand less dominant, some pockets of society actually thought the left hand on some level was unclean. Not as good as the right hand. There is an entire culture within Jewish society that if you would have waved or gestured with your left hand, you would have had to have served 10 days penance for that. So not using your left hand was a big deal. And so we have here the idea that the people in the land are probably Roman soldiers, and they're probably right-handed. And so you you don't need to try what I'm about to speak about to your neighbor, but we're going to talk about striking somebody on the cheek. And so you have a soldier who's right-handed. If he were to become angry with somebody and wanted to slap that person, his dominant right hand, when swung, the blow would land on the person's left cheek. If he were to be really angry, he'd make a fist with his right hand and he'd deliver that same blow and it would land on the left cheek. Now, in order for a right-handed person to strike somebody on the right cheek, he would have to reach across and use his back hand to slap the individual. In this culture, the idea of backhand slapping somebody was taken very, very seriously. In Rome, if, uh, if you were to slap your peer with an, with an open hand, you would have to pay that person 20 days wages. 
If you were to strike them with a fist, you'd have to pay them 40 days' wages. If you were to reach across them with the back of your hand and slap them, you would have to pay that person 100 days' wages. And that's because a backhand wasn't used to hurt, to break, or to bruise. It was only used to humiliate and to degrade the other person. But for the Romans, if they would do this to a Jewish civilian, they didn't have to pay anything because Jewish people weren't seen as their peers. They weren't seen as equals. And so we have this scene in which Jesus is talking about somebody striking them on the right cheek. And so we have this moment in which a Roman soldier has completely humiliated and degraded this Jewish civilian. And Jesus says, if somebody does that to you, don't, don't fight back with physical violence. But also, don't become a doormat and just take it and walk away. Instead, turn the other cheek to them. Communicate to them that you're their equal, that you are their peer, because in this time, this kind of humiliating violence had become the norm in Rome. And Jesus wants to expose this kind of violence. Not just the violence of the individual who does it, but he wants to expose the entire system of degrading violence because Jesus loves his enemies. Jesus loves the Romans, and he knows that if the Romans continue down this path of violence unchecked, without anybody challenging them, the road that they're on is going to lead to a place that does not lead to the kingdom of God. And Jesus desperately wants the Romans to stumble upon the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? All right, we're going to the next one. The next one is about suing somebody. We have some, some interesting dynamics going on here in the text. Matthew says that the person is being sued and Matthew states that if someone sues you for your undershirt, give them your coat as well. Luke is thinking of suing as well, but Luke says that if somebody gives you your coat or sues you for your coat, you should give them your, your undershirt as well. Um, Luke's account is probably more um, consistent or more familiar in the time of giving your coat first and then your undergarment. And Jesus says if somebody actually sues you or takes your coat, go ahead and give them your undershirt as well. So in order to understand this, we have to understand the story that is at play behind this. Are you guys ready for a story? Yes, I love stories. So in, in Jewish culture at this time, debt was endemic. It was all over the place. Almost every Israelite was in debt, and this is why. The Romans had come into the land, and as a result of being in the land, they demanded that the, the citizens of Israel pay tribute and taxes to Caesar. So... We have a tax collector, Romans are new on the scene, and we have a farmer named Bob. Bob is our farmer, he's our Jewish farmer, and he loves his land, and he's used to Israel being autonomous, having their own land, governing themselves, but now the Romans are on their land. So a tax collector, he walks up to Bob and says, Bob, my name's the tax collector, and uh, because we now are in control, you owe us X amount of dollars in taxes. Now, who loves to pay taxes in here? That's right. I knew I was going to get no hands on that one. 
Um, so you had this scenario which the tax collector says, Bob, you need to pay us X amount of dollars in taxes. Bob is going to say, listen, I don't, I don't have that amount of money to pay you. I have this amount, but it won't cover the full amount. The tax collector says, Bob, I'm really sorry to hear that. Well, give us the money you do have for taxes, and then we're going to go on to your land, and we're going we're to separate it, and we're going to divide it, and we're going we're to take a portion of your land to pay for the taxes that you're not able to pay. And then we'll come back next month, and hopefully you're ready next month to pay your taxes. So the next month rolls around, and the tax collector comes out and says, Bob, it's that time of month. You've got to pay your taxes. And Bob says, listen, I didn't have the money last time. I definitely don't have it this time because you took a huge portion of my land, and I, I don't have the crops, the harvest anymore to actually pay the amount that you need. Tax collector says, Bob, I'm sorry to hear that. But we're going to separate and we're going to divide your land again and we're going we're to take your land because you can't fully pay your taxes. This would continue and perpetuate itself until Bob was all out of land. And this would have devastated Bob. Would have made him so upset because this land was the land that God had given him. This is the land his family had passed to him that he was going to pass to his family so when the tax collector comes back, he says, Bob, we're here for taxes. Bob says, I don't even have any land anymore. You took everything. I don't even have a harvest to give you. Tax collector says, Bob, sorry to hear that. We're going to take some of your goods, your possessions, in payment of your taxes. So in the same way, the tax collectors go into Bob's home and they separate and they divide all of his goods until all of Bob's goods are gone. And he's left to be nothing but a tenant on the land. Working the land with his coat and his tunic. No possessions, no land to call his own. Only the work that he gives to the Romans. And so the tax collector comes back the next month and says, Bob, it's time to pay your taxes. Bob says, I don't have anything left. I don't have any land. You took all of it. You took all my stuff. I don't have anything tax collector looks at Bob and says, Bob, it's too bad. We're going to separate and we're going to divide your clothing and we're going to take that to pay for the taxes that you can't pay. So they're in this courtroom and Bob takes off his coat and he hands it to the tax collector and he's left with nothing but a tunic running from his shoulders to his knees and he's devastated. Everything is being taken from him. So he walks out and he meets the tax collector in the street and he follows the words of Jesus. He says, if somebody sues you for your coat, give him your shirt as well. So Bob stands there and takes off his tunic and hands it to the tax collector. And there's Bob, just naked in the public streets. And this would have appalled the tax collector. Nakedness is taboo in the area. It's shameful to be naked in public, but it's even more shameful to be the person that made somebody naked. See, in this Israel-Roman society that's being knit together, greed had become the norm in the area. And so Jesus wants Bob to try and expose this greed to the tax collector. And not exposing it just to expose it, but Jesus loves his enemies. And Jesus loves the Romans. 
And Jesus knows that if this greed continues and moves forward and is left unchecked, then this road leads to a place that is far from the kingdom of God. And Jesus desperately wants the Romans to stumble upon the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? So Jesus is handing his followers these examples of how to expose darkness in the Romans, not for the sake of just exposing it, but he's trying to help them along the way to stumble upon the kingdom of God. We have one last example. Are you ready? I love it. This is fascinating for me. I hope you guys are finding it fascinating as well. This is Matthew chapter 5, and it's verse 41. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them for two miles. Now, this idea of being forced to walk is an idea that we kind of need to find out what's going on in the, the context. So Roman soldiers were constantly, by order of their officials, walking and moving throughout the empire. And they would, they would carry these bags that were 60 to 85 pounds. I don't even like to carry my books in my hand, much less a bag that weighs 60 to 85 pounds. But these Roman soldiers are carrying this bag everywhere. So what they start doing as they're on their journey is they find people like Bob and say, Bob, I need you to carry my bag. I'm exhausted. Bob says, I don't want to carry your bag. Roman soldier says, oh, you're going to carry it. Because if Bob doesn't, he's going to suffer beating, imprisonment, flogging. They're completely under the oppression of the Romans. So people like Bob, not just in Israel, but all over the empire, are being forced to carry the Romans' gear. Now, this practice all throughout the empire is frowned upon and looked down upon. There, there are actually stories of poor villages that when they would see the Romans coming, they, they would take their family in their house, gather their favorite possessions, and the whole village would flee. They'd run from the village because they hated carrying the Roman stuff so much. Other villages, if they were wealthy, they would collect as much money as they could. They would try and pay off the Romans so they didn't have to do their stuff. I remember me as a young person. I'd be watching cartoons on Saturday morning, flipping that dial. You know what I'm saying? Getting that Sonic the Hedgehog going on. My mom would say, Austin, I need you to go clean your room. I'd say, Mom, I'll give you all the money you gave me for chores if you don't make me go clean my room. Like, I felt like that village, right? It's like $5, and I thought it was like a lot of money at the time. My mom's like, that's not going to do it. You need to go clean your room. And so there's actually individuals in Israel who are quoted as saying, when we have to carry the Romans' gear, it is worse than death. And that's how I felt when I was going to clean my room. It felt like it was worse than death. And so anytime somebody is forced to walk one mile with a Roman, they're actually being forced to walk two. You have to put the bag on, you have to walk a full mile, and then once you've done your duty, you can drop the bag and you have to walk another mile back to where you came from. And Jesus is doubling that. He says, if you're forced to walk one mile, go ahead and walk two. And this two miles would have actually been four miles. Two in one direction and two in the other. And you can imagine a conversation that ensues between this Jewish civilian and the Roman soldier. And he's walking with the pack and he reaches the mile mark. And uh, most Jewish people would have dropped the bag at the time. 
David said, I've done my duty. You can't force me to do any more. I'm going to head back. But instead, this Jewish man keeps walking past the mile. And the Roman soldier's puzzled. Why are you still walking? Jewish man says, because I can. The Roman says, but you're not, you're not forced to walk two. You're only forced to walk one. And maybe the Jewish civilian responds, well, the reality is, is that I shouldn't be forced to walk any. You see this kind of injustice and oppression that the Roman soldiers were putting on civilians throughout the empire. It needed to be exposed, and it had actually become the norm to where nobody was challenging it. But Jesus wants to challenge the system, not for the sake of challenge sake, but because Jesus loves his enemies. He loves the Romans, and he knows that if this process, this systemic injustice continues for the Romans and goes forward unchallenged, then the Romans are going to end up in a place far, far, far from the kingdom of God. And Jesus desperately wants the Romans to stumble upon the kingdom of God. Does that make sense? I love it. I love the history. I love the context because it helps me kind of enter the story. I want, I want to enter the story. I want to listen with the ears of somebody who's in Israel. I want to listen through the ears of somebody who had been steeped in Jewish tradition. And I find myself, as I'm listening to this, I find myself normally wanting to play the part of the Jewish man the one being slapped, the one being sued, the one being forced to walk a mile. But I oftentimes find myself sympathizing with the Roman soldiers and the Roman government officials. And this is why, it's, it's because I can't imagine any soldier, any official, or any person waking up, being born into life, and wanting to be that kind of violent person. I can't imagine somebody living their life and wanting to be that kind of a greedy person. I can't imagine somebody wanting to force injustice and oppression on somebody else, but somehow this violence, this greed, this injustice had become the norm. And I think about how many things are there in my life that I've woken up to and realized they're the norm, but I never wanted them to be. I never wanted to be this kind of person, but I've woken up and now I am that kind of person. It reminds me of a thing called the law of entropy. The law of entropy is the idea that this world is headed towards disorder, not order. It's headed towards chaos and not structure. So I think about my life and the kinds of things that do that, the kinds of things that head from order to disorder. And I, I, first thing I think of is my room at home. I mean, I love the fact that I've got a room and I've got stuff in it. But if I leave my room unchecked for too long, that baby doesn't clean itself. I need to buy one of those iRobots that just kind of like walks around in my room and cleans it for me. But, you know, I'll start off the week with a clean room and I got nothing on the floor and everything's hung up and then Monday goes by and there's one shirt and 
Tuesday goes by and there's a couple pairs of pants. And by the end of the week, my room is a disaster. It has succumbed to the law of entropy. That thing is headed towards disorder. The same thing is true in my kitchen. Oh, I love a good-looking kitchen. It looks like that for about one hour every week. I clean it up. Everything's in its right place. Dishwasher's empty. But man, after Monday, it's like, hey, that's just one plate. Just one plate in the sink. I'm going to get that later. Tuesday rolls around. It's like, oh, there's a couple plates and, you know, a couple dishes in there. Thursday, I'm looking for pots and pans, and I realize those are dirty too. And then by Friday, I'm trying to eat my salad, and I can't find a clean fork. That kitchen is headed towards disorder if I leave it unchecked for too long. And so I'm thinking through what kinds of things in my life, if left unchecked, become the norm when I don't want them to be. And sometimes I think it's true also of my attitude. I think if I leave my attitude unchecked for too long, I become the kind of person that wants to be served and not the kind of person that wants to serve. If I leave my finances unchecked for too long, I become the kind of person that's less generous, not more generous. The sad truth of my life is that left unchecked, I consistently become the kind of person I don't want to be, not the kind of person that I want to be. It's easy for my life to spiral out of control. It's easy for my life to head towards disorder. And so I constantly have to check myself, take inventory of myself, allow myself and all the small things to be exposed because those small things are going to turn into big things. And I've also got some stuff in my life that are big things that I wish were small. And oftentimes it's the result of me letting small things go unchecked for too long. And then I wake up and I've got a monster in the closet. Maybe some of you are in the same boat this morning. And you've got some small things going on that if you were to check into it, you wouldn't like what you see. But it's really easy to let it slide. It's really easy to not take inventory of those things because don't worry, that'll be fine. Nothing is going to happen with that. But the reality is that those small things in our life left unchecked become the norm and they become the big things in our life. And so this morning, we want to go into a time of reflection to not leave any corner of our soul unchecked, any room unexposed. Because if we let it go for too long, we find ourselves where the norm of our life is far from the kingdom of God. But we're like the Romans. We want to stumble upon the kingdom of God. And so we're going to go into a time of communion this morning. And this is our opportunity to allow ourselves to be exposed before the Lord. To really investigate those small acts of selfishness, of greed, those small corners that we're cutting. So we're going to invite the communion team forward. I'm going to ask you guys to close your eyes as we pray and invite the Lord into this place to check up on all the corners of our life, to kind of expose 
some of those dark things in our hearts so that we, like the Romans, can be changed, so that we can be transformed and stumble upon the kingdom of God. So God, this morning we invite you into this place. We invite you to fill the room from wall to wall, from the floor to the ceiling. And we invite you into the darkest corners of our heart to expose us. To check in on the small things that we have going on. And God, to begin to work on some of the things that have already spun out of control and turned into, turned into our monsters in the closet. So God, would you be here this morning and lead us through this time? 